Would you turn with me to the second chapter of James, verses 14 through 26, as our concern this morning. One of the most outrageous stories that Jesus told, outrageous at least uh, from the standpoint of those who heard him, was the story of the publican and the Pharisee. The um, Pharisee came into the temple to pray. He was a respectable man, highly regarded in the community. He paid his taxes. He paid his tithes. He was the sort of person that that, uh, most people would want uh, to be associated with and would welcome into their church. And uh, he, he prayed... Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not like that fellow over there. And by that fellow, he was referring to the publican who was on everybody's blacklist. He had a franchise with the Roman government to cheat his fellow countrymen. He was a notorious, probably a notorious womanizer. He, had, uh, he misspent uh, much of his life and his, and his wealth. And one day he pulls up to the temple in his uh, Lincoln Continental with his case of Chivas Regal in the back and two women in the front. And he walks into the temple and he looks at at his shoe tops and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man walked out justified rather than than the other man. And what Jesus was saying is that the salvation is, is something that God does for us and it grows out of the our own personal awareness of need. We walk into the presence of God and realize that, that we are spiritually dead. We don't have anything to offer. We, we're lost. And, uh, and, and no one, in terms of his acceptance before God, is any better than anyone else. No one has a, has a good hand. We walk in and say, I, I can't make it. I don't have what it takes. And on that basis, on that basis Jesus says we're justified, we're declared righteous. God says, you're, you're my friend. I approve of you. I, I accept you. That's, that's the teaching of the apostles consistently through the New Testament. It is justification by faith and not by works. But uh, suppose a year later this... Um, this Pharisee shows up and he still is preoccupied with uh, fast cars and with his women and he's unwilling to stop cheating his, uh, his countrymen and his life is not, is not essentially changed. Then Jesus would say, I question when he said, be merciful to me, a sinner, he really meant what he, what he said. He was not willing to be cleansed from his sin. He's forgotten, as Peter says, his, his cleansing from the old life because when the, when the Lord comes into our life, he comes in to change us. We, we can't just go on and, and live the same type of life. We can't maintain our old lifestyle and claim to be Christian. We may struggle to obey, but we can't disobey and, uh, and justify it and defend it and go on living the old life. Because a real faith, a genuine faith, is demonstrated by works. If, if, if there is no demonstration of the new life, then we can, we can question whether the, the, the life is there. Now, that's the point of view that James takes in verses 14 through 26 of chapter 2. Let's uh, read the first verse. What, what use is it, my brethren... Or we might translate, what is the good of saying? Um, 
the, the Jews had inherited from the Greeks the idea of, of things that are good and things that are not good. And, and sometimes they use this term in that sense, the term that's translated use. What is the good, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, the, the, the authorized version, the King James Version, has introduced a lot of confusion, I think, into our thinking because the, the King James translates this verse, what, what is the use of someone saying he has faith if he does not have works? Can faith save him? And they leave out a very important word. The word is the that occurs in, in, in the Greek text. If we read it right off of, the, off of the text, it says, can the faith, that is, can that faith save him? In other words, can a faith that says, I have faith, but it has no, there is no demonstration of that faith, is that an authentic faith? That's James' point. And uh, the grammar demands a negative answer. No, no indeed, James would say. That's not a real faith. That's not the genuine article. Now, we need to define the term works because it's one of those words that we tend to uh, misunderstand and when we rightly understand words, they have more impact on us. I heard a story some time ago of an Irish washerwoman who had a falling out with one of her co-workers, and uh, this lady got very angry and called her a, a hippopotamus. And uh, the lady didn't register. She uh, went home, didn't say anything. The next day she came back and whacked the lady over the head with her mop, and the lady said, what, what did I do? And she said, Begorah, I just saw a hippopotamus. <clears throat> Once we understand what words mean, they have more impact on us. And uh, we need to understand what James means when, he talk, when he's talking about works. He's not talking about um, the sort of activities that we normally associate with, with works. Teaching Sunday school classes, though that's a very good thing. <coughs> Serving on committees serving as an elder in a church, attending the gatherings of, uh, of the church, although that's the sort of thing that often uh, uh, pastors make a demonstration of real faith. If you're not here in the service, then your faith is not real. But that's not what James is talking about. If you go back to chapter 1 in his description of, uh, of works, verse 25, he says, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of a work, as the margin puts it. This man shall be blessed in what he does. And he goes on to, to explain what that work is. It is keeping your mouth shut when you're under pressure. It's not complaining and, and, and filling the air with your, your cries of self-pity and moaning because things are not going your way. And secondly, it's being concerned about little people, those that, that often are overlooked and they're suffering even though you're suffering. And it's keeping yourself unspotted from the world that is not buying into the world's attitudes when you're, when you're under pressure, blaming God and blaming your circumstances, feeling that it all depends upon you. It's character that James is talking about. That's what he means by a work. Later on in, in chapter 3, he describes works in uh, verse 17 in terms of a wisdom that's from above that is pure, that is morally pure, then, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, uh, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, 
without hypocrisy. It's character. That's, that's the end of it all. That's all that matters. That's the purpose of becoming a Christian, is to display the character of, of Christ. That's why Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in terms of character, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control, moderation, those things. And then in Second Peter, uh, Peter says that we're to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Because he says if you do these things, if these, are, if these works are manifest in your life, they make you to be neither unprofitable nor unfruitful in the knowledge of God. But if you don't do these things, he says you've forgotten. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sin. So when, when James refers to works here, he's talking not about the sort of superficial piety that we often associate with that word, but rather character. Now he elaborates the principle in four ways in the verses that, uh, that follow. First, negatively, two negative examples, and then two positive examples. You'll notice that uh, James... Method is to circle around and, and reinforce his theme again and again. He says in verse 14, What use is it, brothers, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And then in 17, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then 20, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then in 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then finally in verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Those are four summary statements that conclude uh, each phase of his argument. First, a negative example in verses 15 through 17, another negative example in 18 through 20, and then the positive example of Abraham in 21 through 24, and the positive example of Rahab the harlot in 25 and and 26. Now let's look at the first uh, negative example in verses uh, 15, 16, and 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what good is that? Same word that he uses in verse 14. What use is that? What's the good of that? That's not good. Even so, faith, if it has no works, has, does not display itself in character, is dead, being by itself. Uh, the sort of thing that James describes here is something that happened every day in the ancient world. There was a lot of poverty. And uh, there was no welfare, nothing that corresponds to our welfare. And so people literally starved to death. And in James' day, there were a number of Christians that were likewise suffering hardship because they'd been, been cast out of society out of the main line of society, had lost their jobs, and, and they, they, were, they were suffering economic hardship, and, and, and they literally were starving and in rags. When James refers to daily bread, he means just that. In those days, so when they didn't have refrigeration, they normally bought only enough food for one day. So it was, a, it was literally a hand-to-mouth existence. You worked all day, you made enough money to buy the next day's uh, food, and if they couldn't get work, they couldn't get food, and there was no place to go and get food. I can remember when I was a child growing up uh, in Dallas, Texas, that often uh, uh, tramps and itinerant workers, often black laborers, would, would come down our alley 
And uh, we, had a, we had a maid, Ann, who used to feed them off our screen porch. And I can remember as a, as a small boy standing there, warmly dressed, fully clothed, uh, living in a warm house where there was a great deal of love. And we had all sorts of food in the, in the kitchen and in the pantry. And I, I never missed a, a meal in my whole life. And, uh, and, and thinking of the plight of these poor people that Ann was, was feeding in her back porch. Often they were in rags. They were without work. They, they were... They were their circumstances were very dire. And James says, if someone like that comes to our door and we dismiss them with uh, the curt uh, cliche, good luck to you. That's literally what the word means. Good, good luck. Be warm. Find some clothes. And uh, gorge yourself, literally, is what he says. Go find a box to live in. Go find a garbage pecan to rummage through. And we, and we turn them away. James says, what, what is the use of that? It reminds me of the uh, Snoopy cartoon I saw once with Snoopy uh, sitting on the back door of the house with his bowl in his mouth and, uh, and Lucy and, and snow on his back and it was very cold outside and Lucy says to him, uh, be warmed and filled, Snoopy, and then slams the door in his face. That's the sort of thing that, that James says we, uh, we just cannot do. We, we cannot isolate faith from obedience. Faith, it's, he says, if it has no pity, if there's no mercy shown. We saw that before in, in the, the paragraph that precedes. Mercy is shown, he says, to those who have mercy. We've been shown mercy, so we, one, one mark of the fact that we realize how much mercy we've been shown is that we'll show mercy and pity to others. George MacDonald, who uh, was responsible for C.S. Lewis coming to Christ, or largely responsible for his conversion, said that what led to his salvation was seeing a, an epitaph in a Scottish uh, uh, churchyard in the cemetery. Here lies Elgin Martin, or Martin Elgin Broad. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would do if I were God and ye were Martin Elgin Broad. See, there's a man who recognized that he needed mercy. And... Uh, and James says, if, if you realize you need mercy and you've received mercy, you'll show mercy to others. We'll treat others as God has treated us. And if we don't, then we don't realize how merciful God has been. We have written off his mercy. James says, you can't do that. Faith doesn't exist by itself. Would you turn with me back to the book of Titus, please, to see how these two go together? Uh, chapter 3. Verse 5, this is Paul's uh, view of the same, uh, same idea, the identification of, of faith and good deeds. The, uh, the emphasis of the book of Titus is on uh, good deeds. The word occurs numerous times in the book. It occurs in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them uh, to be subject to rulers uh, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. It's the, the same word that James uses, every good work. For, he says in verse 3, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's the way we used to be. But, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's not of us, it is of him. It's on the basis of, not of our deeds, but his, his mercy. 
which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God might be careful to engage in good deeds. You see what he's saying? Precisely what James is saying. That those who have believed in God will manifest the character of God. They'll act like his sons. And then so there'll be no doubt. He spells that out in uh, Titus uh, by telling Titus to speak the things in chapter 2, verse 1, that are fitting for sound doctrine. They correspond to sound doctrine. A, older men are to be moderate. They're not to be enslaved to drink. They're not to be drunks. Dignified. The word means serious of purpose. They're not frittering their life away. They're using it to, to good purpose. Sensible, they're self-controlled, sound in faith and love and perseverance and so forth. And he tells what it means to be a godly older woman, to be reverent in behavior, not a gossip, not in bondage to much wine, teaching what is good and so forth. He spells it out. It's character. James says you, you can't have faith in isolation from, from good works and you can't have good works in isolation from faith. The two go together. They work hand in glove. Now, that's his first negative example, the illustration of the brother or sister in need. The second is, uh, is found in verses 18 through 20. Uh, faith without works is not only dead, it's also demonic. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. I defy you to show me your faith without the works that I will show you by, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice he does not say, you show me your faith without works and I will show you my my works without faith. That's not what he's saying. You demonstrate your faith without character, and I will show you my character or my faith by my character. And then the illustration: you believe that God is one, you do well. Um, so do the demons. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's barren. It's ineffectual. It's not the real thing. This, this paragraph has always been difficult to interpret because I, I think unless you understand the literary style that James is using, it, uh, it, it appears to be confusing. James was using uh, a form of debate that was often used in the ancient world. It's called a diatribe. We, we use that word today to refer almost exclusively to a harangue. But in those days, it was an intellectual debate carried on in abstract. And when uh, a philosopher, for example, was making his case... He would, uh, he would uh, uh, use a, uh, a theoretical uh, example of what he was trying to say by setting up two opposing philosophers to debate one another. And that's what James is doing. One man represents his point of view. Another represents the point of view of the man who says, I, I, I have faith without works. And uh, the NASB is correct in inserting the word well. Someone may well say, someone who aligns himself with James and his, his approach to faith. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. The, the only way that we can see faith working is to see character exhibited. There's no other way. Some of you may remember the old film classic, The Invisible Man, that's been uh, resurrected in another form here recently. But uh, 
in that particular film, the only way you could see the invisible man was to see what he was doing. He picked up a cup or he moved an article of furniture. You could see him in motion, but uh, that, that was the only way. Well, that's what James is saying. How can you see a faith? Faith is invisible unless it's demonstrated in a change in character, a progressive alteration of character to conform to the image of Christ. It's not immediate. It's not automatic. It's not like flipping a switch. But there has to be some growth, some development in character. Otherwise, we may realistically question the faith of that individual. And the illustration that he uses is excellent. Brings in an, a demon to interview him. And he says, uh, tell me, do you believe that God is one? The demon says, absolutely. That, that means that you believe in the, in the triunity of God, that there is one God who is God, right? The demons say, right. And you believe that Jesus is God, right? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sin? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again, visibly, bodily? Yes. He could you, you could take the, the Apostles' Creed and read it to a demon, and the demon would believe it. But it doesn't change his demonic character. He's, he's a demon to the end, and, and that's James' point. You can believe all these things, but unless it begins to change our character, then we don't really believe it. And he uses a very subtle uh, uh, way of putting it. Normally, in the, in the New Testament, faith is expressed as uh, the, the verb, believe, and then into God is the way it's put in Greek. Here, he just, he just says, you believe God. You believe about God. You believe that God is one. Yes, the demons believe all that. We've just gone through a revision of our doctrinal statement, which we feel is a distillation of all the, the teaching of Scripture. I'm sure we're not right in every respect, but we're trying as hard as we can to boil this thing down into a very simple statement of what Christians all around the world believe. And you could hold that up in front of a demon and say, do you believe this? And he would say, absolutely but his character isn't changed. He's still a demon. And that's why James puts it this way. Faith is not only this sort of faith, a faith that says it's faith but has no, there's no exhibition of character, is not only dead, it's, it's demonic. Now we get a positive illustration in verses 21 through 24, the first of two. First, Abraham, whom we all agree is, uh, was a very good man. And then Rahab in verses 25 and 26, who would be considered by everyone as a very bad woman. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? I'm reading verse 21. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It, it was matured. It, 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 it grew up. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. In two places in the Old Testament, in Chronicles and in Isaiah, Abraham is described as God's friend forever. He, he is, was an intimate friend of God. He was, he was that close to God. And the argument is, how did he get that way? You might think, from reading verses 21 through 24, that Abraham did it by works. Sounds very, uh, very straightforward, very cut and dried. Abraham was justified by works. It says so, right? 
This is the passage that caused Luther to reject the book because he couldn't see how this could be reconciled with Paul's teaching on justification by faith. And this is what has caused a lot of distress among Christians. How do you put this verse together with what Paul says in Romans 4? That Paul was justified, or that, that Abraham was justified by faith. Here, James says he was justified by works. Let's, let's turn back to Romans 4 and look at that passage. Paul is arguing here for justification by faith. And he adduces Abraham as uh, exhibit A. Question is, how did Abraham, how was Abraham justified? Was it by a lifetime of good works or was it by belief? Paul says, what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He was, of course, the, the first of a long line of Israelites. For, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And he goes on to, uh, to bring forward other illustrations of that principle in the Old Testament. That, that men in all times have been saved, not by keeping the law. No one ever kept the law as a means of, of being justified. The law was always uh, obeyed as a result of faith. It says men believed in God, that they were able to keep the law. And Abraham is a prime example of that. The passage he quotes, that Paul quotes here, comes from, from Genesis 15. Abraham had just come back from a conflict with some kings in Mesopotamia who had kidnapped his nephew. And he came back all discouraged and disappointed because the victory didn't mean a thing to him. The only thing that mattered in his life was to have a son. He was terribly despondent. In the middle of the night, God appeared to him, and he said, I am your reward. And Abraham said, no, that, that isn't enough. You promised that I would be the father of a great nation. Now, where is the son? Where is the child? I'm childless. As the Hebrew puts it, I'm going on childless. He was about 85 when the story is told. And, and, and Sarah had already gone through the menopause. There was no possibility of their having children. And he said, the only, the only possibility of a descendant is one through Eliezer, my servant. God says, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? That's how many children you'll have. And the writer of Genesis said that Abraham believed God. Literally, he just kept on believing. He'd been believing God up to that point. And even though God promised this impossible thing, he believed, as, as Hebrews puts it, he, he, he hoped against hope. His body was dead. He couldn't produce children, and, and neither could Sarah. It was an impossible promise, but he believed God. And the writer of Genesis says it was accorded to him righteousness. He was, he was given righteousness. He was justified. That's how he became the friend of God. And it wasn't any work that he did. He wasn't circumcised until later. It was his faith that, that saved him. Well, then how can James say it's, it, it's Abraham's work? Well, it's because James is not talking about Genesis 15 at all very clear from the passage. Go back to James. Doesn't have that incident under the stars in mind at all. He's talking about an event that occurred 30 years later. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
Um, that was after the son was born and after Isaac was about 20 years of age and Abraham was in his hundreds that this took place. You know the story. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son whom you love. It's almost as though he's, he's, he's reminding Abraham if he needed a reminder of how much he loved this boy. And this was, his whole life was bound up in his child. This was his hope. This was the fulfillment of the promise. God said, take, take him off to Mount Moriah and, and, and offer him up as a burnt offering. The, the word means a, an offering that's totally consumed. Abraham thinks, well, it's come to this. They practiced child sacrifice all around him, and up to this point, God had never required that. But he thought, well, I, I guess it's come to this. So he saddles up his little donkey, puts some wood on it, and the boy loads up the boy, and they start off. From Mount Moriah, it's about 50 miles north of Beersheba where they were. And, and they start to climb the mountain. And, and the boy says, where's the sacrifice? And, God, and, and Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. And built a little altar, put wood on it, bound the boy. And laid him on the altar and took his flint knife. And he was going to plunge that knife right into the chest of his boy. Nothing, nothing would have stopped him. He was bound and determined to put that boy to death because God had commanded. And God said, no. Don't, don't, don't slay your son Isaac. For now I know that you fear God. That was the acid test. Now the way I understand it, what happens is that becoming a Christian is like signing a blank sheet of paper. God hands us a contract with, with none of the provisions filled in. Just a, just a line at the bottom to sign and, and we sign on. And then he begins to fill in the contract. And uh, there are small acts of obedience along the way that we're required to, to accede to because we've agreed to the contract. And then sooner or later, there comes some special act of obedience that is the real test of our salvation. If we have been regenerated, no matter what it costs us, we will agree. Oh, we may struggle. We may struggle for years. But the issue has been settled in our heart. We can't rebel against that, that clause in the contract and say that we signed in good faith. It doesn't work that way. And that becomes the test of whether or not we have truly been regenerated. As I understand the doctrine of, of eternal security, it does not say that we can say a few words, put together some combination of words and say them, and that makes us a Christian, and then we can live the way we please from that point on. That is not what the New Testament teaches anywhere. What it teaches is that, uh, that, that we, are, we are changed, we're regenerated, our hearts are, are renewed, we're born again. And the doctrine of eternal security establishes that those who have been truly regenerated will endure to the end. You'll see change of character. And if there's no change of character, then it's an indication that we've never been born again. There are a lot of people who, who think of themselves as Christians, who call themselves Christians. And who are called as Christians by others. But they're like people of whom Jesus said, you, you said unto me, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you. And they say, well, wait a minute, we've cast out demons in your name. We've done many mighty works. And Jesus, I never knew you. Because there's never been that in-depth commitment to Christ. We don't know what his lordship means, but we have to be willing to come and, and accept him on that basis. And then he begins to fill in the contract. And we have... If we are truly regenerated, if we meant business, 
then we will respond in obedience. God will see to it that we do. Um, I had a friend back in the Bay Area who uh, was a sales manager for a large firm, and one of his responsibilities as sales manager was to arrange for parties and gambling trips and whatnot for people that, uh, that work for the company as, as an incentive. And uh, he felt uneasy about a, a great deal of it, but it was difficult to know where, what was morally right and what was morally wrong in this issue until they asked him to arrange uh, hostesses for a particular party. And, and he knew very well that these hostesses were nothing more than highly paid prostitutes. And he said, no. And the man said, it'll cost you your job. And he says, well, <laughs> that's the way it goes. But I'm not stepping across that line. And I think that's what happened to Abraham. I think that's what happens to us. Sometimes it comes down to whether or not we're going to obey Christ and work on our marriages no matter what it costs. Or we're not going to cheat or lie or, or distort the truth on behalf of our employer no matter what it costs. Even if it costs our job. And whether or not we obey is the real test of whether or not we, we mean business. I, I mentioned before that... A year or so ago, a friend of mine who was in, in the doctoral program at Stanford, who was denied his degree by his committee basically because of his Christian presuppositions. He just had some real problems, and the particular discipline he was in required him uh, to, to compromise to some extent his Christian faith, and uh, he struggled and struggled with the committee for some time until they finally just denied him uh, the right to continue in the program. And... As he tells it, he was sitting in the office of, his, uh, of the professor who was overseeing his program. And when he was told that he was out of the program, what he thought of first was you know, $20,000 or $30,000 going out the window and uh, three years of his life. And then he thought of the words, uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords, even if it's a Ph.D. And he said, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. And he, and he grinned when he said it, and the professor thought that he'd lost his mind. He went running out to get, get the secretary because everything fell into place. At that point, he realized that, that this degree didn't matter in terms of, of the Lordship of Christ. And he's now down in Central America serving with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship there. And, and I think that's the sort of thing that happens now and, now and again. We're faced with that issue. And I, I don't know what it is for you or for me. But it's the acid test of our faith. And if we have the real thing, we will do what God calls us to do no matter what it costs us. The second illustration, positive illustration, is that of Rahab. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works in that she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. I forgot to mention that in, let's see, it's back in... Uh, Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, is the way the New American Standard translates. What you have there is just a simple participle. If you read it right off the page, it would be, was not Abraham our, our father justified by works offering up Isaac? And uh, in terms of James' argument, I think it's better to translate in that he offered up Isaac. It was not that was, he's not saying that was the time when he offered up Isaac. That was simply the evidence that he was justified by works. And the same thing is said of Rahab. 
In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works in that she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. That again was the, uh, was the proof of her salvation. She put her life on the line for the spies. Again, you know the story. The two spies were sent out by uh, Joshua to reconnoiter the city of Jericho before they assaulted the city. And, uh, they made their way into the city and probably went to her house because that was one place where no one would question the presence of strangers. And they were obviously not Jerichoites. So they went to her house. She was, a, she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And we know a great deal about what prostitution was like in those days. She was not a good woman. And they, uh, the, the spies, she, she sensed that they were outsiders and she began to question them, found out they were Israelites. And she said, oh, I've heard about your God. Tell me. Tell me more. And she aligned herself with God's problem to uh, God's uh, program to bring His people into the line, into the land. Rather. She put herself in, into the line of salvation. She, she's, she didn't know much; didn't know as much as Abraham knew. But she she believed a very simple level of, of faith. And and uh, James says she helped them out another way, which was over the wall, through the window, and over the wall, and and jeopardized her own life as through her actions, but she was willing to put her life on the line because of her faith. And apparently she changed markedly. She married an Israelite, uh, traditionally one of the spies, which would make a nice love story if somebody would like to write it up and embellish it a little bit, and uh, became uh, the mother or the grandmother, it's difficult to know which, of Boaz. And if you know anything of the story of Ruth, you know what a, what a godly man Boaz was and how much integrity he had and how he... How, how much love he showed for Ruth and how tenderly he treated her and how chastely he treated her. And I asked myself, now, where did he learn all of that if he had a mother who was a prostitute? Well, it's because she didn't remain a prostitute. If she had, I would, begin, I would question whether her faith is real. But James' point is that she changed. She began to take some steps to align herself with, with God's program to bring salvation to the earth. She changed. And James concludes... Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is, is dead. A dead body is dead, that's all. It's just dormant, it doesn't have any life. My father used to tell a story about a, a woman who was weeping over the, the coffin that contained the body of her husband, and she was saying, John, speak to me. John, speak to me. And there were a couple of mourners in the back, and one nudged the other and said, if, she, if he does... This window is mine. Because <clears throat> we know, you know, that normally dead people just don't do that sort of thing. And his point is, uh, that kind of faith, a faith that doesn't express itself in works, is, is dead. Has no life. There's no, uh, no spirit there. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Now, we need to understand that, that obedience is not a matter of gritting our teeth and trying harder. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you may remember uh, Bill Cosby's Christmas record in which he describes how he tried to go to sleep the night before Christmas. As he puts it, have you ever tried to go to sleep? You know what that's like. You, you just can't. It, it, it's faith 
that enables us to do what God has called us to do. To do. It's relying upon Him. It's trusting Him. It's believing Him. It's drawing on His strength. It's not uh, becoming a Christian and then gritting your teeth and, and trying harder because it doesn't work. It's, it's a, it, as the new life begins to grow and develop within us that our character begins to, begins to change. And what James and the other apostles are saying is not that uh, we become a Christian and then all of a sudden we try to alter our lifestyle. That's, that's not at all. It's that life, the life of God in us will express itself. There will be fruit. There will be character. And what we need to do is cooperate by choosing to do what, what God calls us to do. And then whatever demand is upon us, he, he supplies the resources that we need to comply with that demand. And we begin to change. We change all over. We change in unexpected ways. Ways which we don't expect and, and others as well. I got a phone call this last week from a man that uh, one of the few people in the world that I honestly dislike. Uh, there really aren't too many people that I have, have that feeling about, but this man I just have never liked. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a little rich boy. He grew up in Hillsboro. In, uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and spent most of his time sailing sailboats out on the bay. And He was raised by his mother and grandmother who doted on him and gave him everything he ever wanted, and he was just spoiled rotten. I met him when he was about 22 or 23 years old. He's a very bright, highly intelligent guy who's, whose mouth moves, moves on cue. That's the only way I can describe him. Every time, you know, he, every time you're with him and you, and you start to say something, he, he, he cuts you off. And uh, he's so bright, he just intimidates everybody around him. And unfortunately, he became a Christian just about the time that... Um, <laughs> I used to say he's the kind of Christian that makes me want to be a Buddhist. <clears throat> he became a Christian just about the time I started working with students. And a friend of mine got us together, and he started working on the campus with me. And he was, he was an embarrassment to me. I just, I just struggled. Uh weekly with uh, with this man. And uh, this continued on for a number of, of years, and he uh, he left the campus ministry and got involved in some other things in business. And, and uh, I came up here five years ago, and he went to work for Hewlett-Packard, and he showed up in town this week. And he gave me a call. And when he told me who it was, I just winced inside. <laughs> but you know, he... First thing he said is, how's Carolyn? And I didn't even knew, know that he knew my wife's name because he'd never asked. He'd never been concerned about my family. And then he said, how's Josh? And how's Randy? And what's Randy doing? And, and how, how's Brian? And how's your ministry going? And we talked for probably 15 minutes before I realized I hadn't asked him anything about himself. He was asking about me. And... Uh, I noticed that, that even the, the tone of his voice was different. It wasn't strident. He didn't talk as fast as he used to talk. When I started to talk, he would shut up and listen. And I saw what was happening. The Carl was beginning to realize the grace of God. He was beginning to grow and mature and become everything. And see, that's the mark. That's always the mark of a real faith. The question we have to ask ourselves, you know, this should not make us insecure. It shouldn't shake us and doubt our salvation. The, the appeal throughout the New Testament is always test yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
And the test is a, is a willingness to obey. It's not even always obedience because we all fail and we struggle and we fall and we have to pick ourselves up and start over again. But the question is, is there a willingness? Is there a heart to obey? And are we willing to lay hold of God's resources to change? And are we willing to do the hard things, the things that hurt out of obedience? If they are, it's an indication that we belong to him. And if we belong to him, we cannot lose our salvation. We will never fall out of God's good grace. As as S. Lewis Johnson used to put it, we may fall on the ship, but we never fall overboard. He'll support us. I've said before, I see three lines of truth running all the way through Scripture. There are these incredible demands upon us of the Lordship of Christ. Be holy because I am holy. And then uh, underlying that are provisions of his grace, his infinite resources available to us to be what, what he's called us to be. And then underneath are the everlasting arms. It's that incredible, ongoing, relentless love and forgiveness that never lets go of us, that never gives up on us, that never quits, that never gets down on us. And understanding that enables us to walk, you see, and with rest, with quietness of heart. We don't need to be in turmoil all the time, wondering if we're saved or lost. We've given our heart up to him and we belong to him, and he'll see to it that we endure to the end. And the test of that is our willingness to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that word of grace that, that bids us fly and gives us wings. It doesn't merely burden us with, with the debt of our sin and the obligation to be something that we can't be, but, but calls us to high and holy and noble living and, and then supplies what we need. We thank you that, that you're not off there somewhere, but within, indwelling us, constantly available, 24 hours a day, to respond to our, to our requests and our cries for help. We thank you that you know in advance what, what hard circumstances we're going to face today and, and you're standing there ready to give us what we need to undertake the task that, that's ours. Deliver us from feelings of fear, feelings of inadequacy, and, and help us to, to, to realize fully what great resources we have in you. We thank you for this teaching, for the encouragement that it is to us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.